All right. Uh, well, you're here for Daniel chapter 3. If you missed chapter 1 and chapter 2, I'm going to do a little recap for you this morning. You know in TV shows when you're watching Netflix or something, there'll be a little button at the beginning of the show that says like skip, re- recap, or intro or whatever. Well, today you don't have that button. You just have to hear me talk, give you the whole intro. If you've been here the last two weeks and you're like, I've already heard this, well, just bear with me. It's going to be good. All right? Everybody, everybody good? Good? Okay, cool. All right, so the last two weeks we've been going through Daniel. We went through Daniel 1 in the first week and Daniel 2 in the second week. Uh, the first message of the series was called Daniel is, or not Daniel still on the throne. God is still on the throne. Excuse me, God is still on the throne. Um, Daniel starts out, he's in captivity, right? Daniel, uh, the Israelites and Daniel have been captured by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has defeated Israel, taken them over, and uh, snatched a bunch of their promising young men as their captives, and they've assimilated them into their culture. And then when the young men were asked to participate in a form of worship of the pagan deities by eating the king's food and the king's drink um, that had been uh, offered up to the pagan gods, four men refused to do that. That was Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were given new names, okay? So it's kind of confusing, but stick with me. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are the three guys. Okay? Everybody good? Okay, cool. So because they recognized that God was still on the throne, they refused to eat and drink what they had been given by the king that had been sacrificed to the pagan gods, and God had granted them wisdom and understanding as a result. So because of their wisdom and understanding, King Nebuchadnezzar promoted them within his kingdom and um, blessed them with higher authority. So in Jeremy's message last week on Daniel 2, uh, his title was, Will the Real God of Heaven Please Stand Up? And he preached on the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar had asked all of his magicians and astrologers and sorcerers and Chaldeans if any of them could tell him what the dream was and the interpretation of that dream. And no one could except for Daniel's God. The God of heaven stood up and made himself known to King Nebuchadnezzar by his servant Daniel, who not only told Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, and the interpretation, but he also told the king what he was thinking about the night before he went to bed and had that dream. Just in a, a powerful display of God making himself known. And now we'll, we'll show this image of what the dream was. His dream was that there was a statue, and the statue was made, the head was made of gold, the chest and arms were made of silver, the belly and thighs were made of bronze, the legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. Kind of a mixture of both. And in this dream, a large stone comes out of nowhere and breaks into the statue and busts it into a million pieces like chaff, and the wind carried it away, and there was no trace of it to be found. So we'll show the next image here, the one that Jeremy showed last week. This is the breakdown of of the interpretation of the dream. Um, So the interpretation is that the head is the kingdom of Babylon. That's uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Then there's the arms and chest, which is the Medo-Persian. 
Empire, then the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and then the divided kingdom. So, since Daniel's God, the God of heaven, was able to interpret the dreams, Nebuchadnezzar fell down in humility. You remember this? He falls down in humility at Daniel's feet and says, Truly your God is the God of all gods. And he gave them gifts and promoted them to sit at the king's gate. He promoted Daniel to sit at the king's gate. And then at the behest of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar also set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the provinces of Babylon. So in chapter 1, we're reminded that God is in control. In chapter 2, we're reminded that God causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. And now in chapter 3, we are reminded that we are to fear God rather than man. So today's title is, Do We Fear Man or Do We Fear God? I'm going to pray and then we'll read this chapter. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. Help us to uh, gain and glean what we need to out of this message. Just instruct our minds and our hearts. Um, just put your word on our hearts and we just pray that we will change as a result of this, that you will give us direction, that you'll give us instruction from your Holy Spirit and that we will listen to that and obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read all of Daniel 3, and then we'll go through it. Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at this time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came uh, forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar had spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, face, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, or the Son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps administrators, governors, the king's counselors gathered together, and the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the son of Shadrach, be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trust in him, that they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon." First things first. <clears throat> All right, so 
in this chapter, when I first read it, I was thinking, well, not when I first read it, but this week when I read it, I was thinking, where is Daniel? Did you guys think that? Um, some think maybe he was on official business of the king. Some think maybe he was left at the king's gate where he was assigned at the end of chapter 2. We don't know. We can only speculate. Um, but this passage, we do know, begins with a clear link to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, the head made of gold was prophesied as Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Now we have him erect an entire statue of gold. That's not by mistake. But before we get into that, King Nebuchadnezzar's disposition had also changed between chapters 2 and chapter 3. He had a heart change. If you notice, we leave off King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, and he's in a place of humility and amazement before God. He had fallen down on his face in humility, but in his disposition toward the dream seems to change uh, from humility toward God and the God of heaven and standing in amazement of him to a place of bitterness and pride. Alistair Begg says, Nebuchadnezzar was charmed by the miraculous signs, but not changed by them. For a time, it seems as though he was changed by the miracles. We leave chapter 2, and he's on his face. Then approximately nine years later, that's the timeline between the events of chapter 2 and chapter 3, approximately nine years, he has a statue erected in his own honor. Leave chapter 2, he's on his face. Chapter 3, statue erected in his own honor. This was a massive, monstrous statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. William G. Heslop writes, On the plains of Dura there stands today a rectangular mound about 20 feet tall, 20 feet high, an exact square of about 46 feet at its base, resembling the pedestal of a colossal statue. Now, obviously, we don't know if this is the exact place where this statue was erected, but it's pretty cool that there is something like that there. The plains of Dura were in the same area in Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was set up, like we had talked about in the first week, where the people, if you remember, said, we don't need your God. We will build our own empire. In this same place was where King Nebuchadnezzar erected this statue. So this statue was not just something nice to look at for King Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't just set it up as uh, some, something to have in his courtyard to look out at and admire. It wasn't a tribute to himself. It wasn't a symbol of his power to the people, of all the things that he had accomplished. He was the king of the world at the time. His statue was a proclamation to God. His statue was a proclamation that said, I'm king of the world. Who are you to tell me when my kingdom will end? I am building this entire statue of gold to show you no kingdoms coming after me. This is my kingdom. I'll show you. My future is for me to decide. I'm in control of my own destiny. King Nebuchadnezzar had a display of humility when he was faced with truth, but he chose not to give up control. He had a display of humility in the moment when God revealed himself, right? And then when the true God of heaven stood up, it did not last. King Nebuchadnezzar gives us an amazing example of what not to do. He did not fear the Lord, right? The Lord had given him an experience of his power and supremacy over all gods. He showed him who the real God was. He stood up. Yet 
that his response was to go, to to go toe-to-toe with God and say, I'm in control of my own destiny. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to control his future by setting up a statue that declared his control, but he also brought together all the officials from around his land, around his kingdom, to come and dedicate the image. And it wasn't just a, a little party. It was to test their allegiance to himself. He had them all bow down, didn't he? It was to test their allegiance because if he was to set up a kingdom that was going to last forever, he would have to make sure that his people were, uh, their allegiance was in the right place and to himself. He wanted his kingdom to be everlasting. That's what he was communicating by building the golden statue. And he wanted to make sure that his subjects were loyal to him. He was trying to control the situation. Does this sound familiar? I mean, I relate to this so much. When we decide to take control from God, we, we want to take control ourselves, right? Have you ever done that before? Have you said, I can't trust God with this relationship? He hasn't come through in the past, so I'm just going to take control myself. I, I can't trust God with my finances, just like we talked about. How can I trust he'll provide? I'll just take control of this one area. I can't forgive that person. They've done too much. I'll just take control of this area and just continue staying bitter. The default when we decide to take control from God is to take control into our own hands. In every area, when we feel ourselves sensing that, that, that sense of like, ah, I'm grabbing control, aren't I? <laughs> That's a good sign that we need to give the controls back to God. Daniel 3.7 says, So at this time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples and na- nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, my mind immediately flashed back to Revelation 7, when you hear that verse. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 says, After all these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, who is Jesus, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out loud, with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne worshipped and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Sorry, I woke up with a little cold this morning, so I'm kind of, if I sound nasally, that's why. So Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up to be worshipped by every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's not by accident. He had defeated the world, and he wanted their worship for himself. Nebuchadnezzar is a type of antichrist. He's not the antichrist prophesied about in Revelation, but him setting himself up to be worshipped in the way that Christ is meant to be worshipped, he is an antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar commands them to bow down, And then we see in verse 12, there are certain Jews who did not bow down. 
So when we hear that, when we hear there are certain Jews who did not bow down, that means that other Jews did bow down, right? If I said these people didn't go to the store, or some of these people didn't go to the store, that means some of them did, right? So, so some of them uh, did bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems as though it's the same individuals who ate the king's food and drank the king's uh, wine in the first chapter, because it's the same three guys who are standing up and saying, no, we won't do it. Isn't it amazing that it's the same ones? We can see here that in the, if we can't make excuses in the small things and expect to make good choices in the big things. They made excuses when they were given the king's food and drink, these, these Jews who did bow down, and they thought to themselves, oh, I'm in a distant land, I don't want to rock the boat. <clears throat> Is this really the hill I'm wanting to die on? I'm just a teenager, what can I do? I'm just a captured prisoner of war, what can I do? I'm just going to go along with it. I'll have no influence here if I get kicked out of the program, if I'm killed for, for what I'm standing up for, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. They never drew the line in the sand, these Jews. The ones who bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar were probably thinking to themselves, when are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to stop making a scene? They're embarrassing us. So then the Chaldeans come forward and accuse the Jews. And we see here that the, the Jews, uh, that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they weren't standing out, but they also weren't hidden, right? They were kind of in the middle. They, were, they weren't making a big scene, but they weren't hiding themselves either. Charles Spurgeon has this quote about this passage. He says, you will not be able to go through life without being undiscovered. A lighted candle cannot be hid. There is a feeling among some good people that it will be wise to be very reticent or reserved and to hide their light under a bushel. They intend to lie low all the wartime and come out when the palms are being distributed. They hope to travel to heaven by the back lanes and skulk into glory in disguise. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Lights are meant to illuminate the way, right? We should allow our lights to be seen. We should allow that, but never for our own benefit. Matthew 5, 16, to glorify your Father in heaven. That is our goal. Our light of our faith can be seen, but it's to glorify the, the God of heaven. All right, so then we have 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, which says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. So this may seem like a contradiction, right? You have, uh, you need to be, um, lead a quiet life and mind your own business, and you also need to let your light shine before men. How do we do those things? In the Christian life, you'll find, if you're new to the Christian life, there are a lot of areas where we're meant to hold things in tension. Things that seem like contradictions are not contradictions. They're just meant to be held in tension. 
One example is the example of faith and works, right? Faith without works is dead, but we are saved through faith uh, alone by grace alone. We need to hold these things in tension. And we do that by listening and depending on God, listening to his Holy Spirit every day. It's, it's what keeps us dependent on him. It's a blessing. So what do the Chaldeans say when they tell the king about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's disobedience? Daniel 3.12, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image you have set up. So, I mean, the, the, the thing at hand is that they're not, they're not bowing down to, the worship, to worship the gold image. But apparently word had gotten out about these guys, about previous situations where it was clear that they did not worship the gods of Babylon. They, uh, it had gotten out that they had decided not to eat the choice foods or drink the wine of the king, and that they had been healthier as a result, which was a proclamation to the God of heaven, to their God. Then uh, Daniel's God was able to interpret the, the dream um, and just blow Nebuchadnezzar away. Um, another testament to Daniel's God. So they didn't just accuse them about the one thing that was at hand, right? They said two things. They said, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image you've set up. They were building a case against them. Have you ever done that with your spouse or something like that where you're like, why did you do that? You just did something like that last week. <laughs> just the other day you were doing this. We, it's, it's so funny how we do things like that. But they were doing this exact same thing. They were, going, they were building a case to the king. They did not serve your gods. They did not worship the gold image. Nebuchadnezzar confronts them, right? And he says, is it true? Is it true that you will not serve my gods or worship the gold image? What Nebuchadnezzar was really asking is, are you loyal to me? Because he, his perspective, he's building and trying to build an everlasting kingdom. He is weeding out those who are not loyal to him. So what he's asking is, are you loyal to me? So Nebuchadnezzar, who had touted himself as their God to be worshipped, then says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He says, I'm the king of the world. I've defeated all of these nations and peoples you see out here. Who can stop me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, our answer is not going to change no matter how many times you ask. Our answer is our answer. And they had such confidence in God in it. They knew that God would deliver them. But it's interesting, they, give, they, they say, they assert, God will deliver us, but if not, let it be known that we did not serve your gods, nor will we worship your golden image. So we can trust that God can save us, but if he doesn't, this is what they're saying, we trust that God's going to save us, but if, if he doesn't, remember, we didn't serve your gods. So what would happen next? Well, they're tossed into the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar is astonished, and he gets up. And he says, didn't we cast three men into the fire? They were bound in there too. And they answered, true, king. And he said, I see four men not bound up walking around in the furnace, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, some translations say, or a son of the gods. And he called them out, and the hair on their heads was not singed, nor the garments 
nor their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Personally, that might be the biggest miracle to me. I was at a bonfire on Monday and um, went home and threw the clothes I was wearing, along with some other things, um, into the washing machine. And when it all came out, everything smelled like smoke instead of just the clothes I was, you know, I was, yeah. So that's a miracle, right? So then the chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar promoting them again, right? He promotes them again, says no one's allowed to speak ill of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, or they'll be cut in pieces and their houses burned down. So we seem to leave off of chapter 3 in the same place we left chapter 2. Will Nebuchadnezzar get it now? Will he fear the Lord? Did he remove the statue? Does his amazement turn into real submission to the God of heaven? I feel like in this season of my life, the Lord's been uh, talking to me a lot about preparing the bride. Um, And so I feel like this is an area that's significant for us in the preparation of us awaiting the return of our Lord is that we need to understand and have a proper understanding of the fear of the Lord. When faced with situations when we have to obey God or obey man, what do we choose? What do we choose? We uh, we had a Google review um, a couple weeks ago that came through, and uh, this man had said something that multiple others had said to us um, during covid and it seems strange that it only arrived a couple couple weeks ago. Um, but uh, he, so I was kind of debating on whether to talk about this or not. And he had posted the review, and I responded to the review, and he removed his uh, review. And I was thinking, well, he probably removed it just so people didn't see my response, because he reposted his review after the fact. Um, And I'll just share with you a little bit about his review and our response. Um, He said, we will not be attending your church at all ever. And there is more like us. Romans 13, 1 through 2 says, obey the government for God is the one who put it there. You are defying orders from the state and we find you are not only wrong, but you are hypocrites. So, He goes on, and we heard this multiple times uh, throughout COVID when we decided to open about five weeks into the uh, pandemic. And uh, so anyway, that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the COVID situation. So my response, hi, blank, I'm not going to share his name. Thank you for reaching out and sharing your concern. Paul writes in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so, as the much, so much more as the day we see the day approaching. See, we are, not, we are commanded not to forsake the assembling of the church, right there. And then I included his full verse in context of the one he quoted. He didn't like that very much. Romans 13, 1 to 3 says, uh, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Do you want to be afraid of authority? Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will, be, uh, you will have praise for the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So what kind of government is being talked about in Romans 13? It's a just government, right? A just government, one that, that executes wrath on evil and one that praises good. So I said in the passage you mentioned, Jesus was clearly referring to governments that are just and righteous. Obviously, in Romans 13, Jesus did not mean that we should obey governments at all times whatsoever. We must obey governments as long as it is just and in line with God's commands. When they are not in line with God's commands, i.e. do not forsake the assembling of the church, then we must choose to obey God rather than government. Jesus himself displays this when he claimed to be the son of God. This was against Jewish law at the time, and he was killed for it. Yet he, um, yet he obeyed God rather than government. You can see the example in Daniel 3, where we are today, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to, uh, by the government to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to do so because it went against God's command that you shall have no other gods before me. God affirmed their decision by rescuing them from the furnace. And then I invited him to come to church. <laughs> I hope he's here, but if not, it's okay. All right, so uh, in addition to that, Acts 5.29, when the apostles were asked to stop preaching the gospel by their government at the time, they were told to stop preaching about Jesus and Peter says, but, or in, in, in Acts it says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. We knew we would get backlash when we opened, and at the end of the day, we had to decide that we would fear God more than we would fear man. We will follow him, speak the truth, no matter what the consequences, because the world is in opposition to God. We ought to obey God rather than man. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fearing what others will do to our bodies physically is one type of fear of man. But there's another kind as well. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, Saul has just become king. He's been anointed as king of Israel. And um, recently is instructed uh, to defeat the Amalekites and destroy and kill everyone and everything in the town because of the Amalekites' sin. And when Saul was questioned by Samuel after the fact, Samuel's a prophet, why he saved the best livestock instead of killing everything as he was told to, Saul said, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Saul was the king. He wasn't afraid of what they would do to him physically. He was afraid of them marring his reputation. He was afraid of not being liked. He was afraid of not being popular anymore. Saul had led the people in a great victory just a couple chapters prior, and they had thrown him a party. He loved being a servant to the Lord when it resulted in him being celebrated and liked. 
But now when the Lord asked him to do something that was less than popular, he showed who he truly feared. He feared the men. He feared man. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Our son Emerson, he's four and a half, and he doesn't quite understand the English language yet. Um, and he, when he wants to inquire more about something, he will say, uh, what's it look like? No matter what it is. What's it look like? You know, tell me more. So what does it look like for us to fear the Lord? Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. You can't have wisdom without it. When I first wanted to pursue bow hunting, I had to get my bow. I had to learn the fundamentals. I had to learn how to draw the bow back and where to anchor it on my face and how to use proper back tension to release the arrow and all those fundamentals. You can't skip those parts. In the same way, you can't skip over the basics, the first steps of, of having a proper fear of the Lord in hopes to be wise. You have to have it. C.S. Lewis has this great analogy in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, where the kids are going to meet Aslan. Has everybody seen that movie? Everybody seen it? Yeah. So before the kids go to meet Aslan, um, who is the figure representing Christ in the books, they first go to speak with Mr. and Miss Beaver. And uh, when they discover Aslan is a lion, they have some questions about whether he is safe or not. Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Gospel Ministries describes the fear of God like this. To fear God is less horror and more reverence. It's something that goes beyond mere respect for God, but stops short of sheer terror. Therefore, to fear God is to revere him or to stand in awe of him. We went to the zoo last year, and we got to go to the, uh, we went to the Santa Barbara Zoo, us as a little family, and got to see the lions through the glass, right? And that's just an amazing experience, this huge, powerful animal that could snuff you out in an instant. You're just looking at it through this too thin glass. Um, and it just inspires this, um, it's just awe-inspiring to see something so powerful, so close. I think for us um, in the American church, we tend to lack a healthy fear of God. With much of Christian popular culture and books and worship music out there, you'd think that God would be compared to a nice little fuzzy thing, like a bunny rabbit or a hamster or a kitten. Just a nice fuzzy support, emotional support animal, right? That's what God is. No. God is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our judge. He is our creator. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Angels, who are incredibly powerful and scary in the Bible, when humans come into face-to-face -to -face with angels, they, their response commonly is to fall on their faces as though they're dead. These powerful angels were struck, uh, struck deadly fear into people. And this is how they worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 5, 11 through 14 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. 
saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote. He says that when you fear the Lord, it removes the fear of anything else. When we have a proper fear of God, it removes the fear of anything else. So are we fearing man, or, or do we fear God? Are we experiencing fear in our lives? Are we fearful of what people think of us or what people can do to us, I think what we can do is we can change that by cultivating a fear of the Lord instead. Do we fear man or do we fear God? Let's pray. Lord, help us to have a healthy awe of you. We stand in awe of you this morning because you are incredible, beautiful, mighty, powerful, And you are worthy to be held up and praised and worshipped in that manner. Lord, help us to magnify your name in the way that you deserve. Help us not to be a people who lack this fear of the Lord because we can't even be wise without it. We can't do a wise thing without it. It's the beginning. Help us to be wise in this way. Help us to fear you. Help us to love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.